Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. In today's episode, we visit with Bill A. Jones, narrator of My Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. That's right, My Christmas Courtroom Trilogy, a collection of three cozy mysteries in the holiday genre where lawyers save Christmas. The former dean of Wake Forest University School of Law said it better than I could have said it when she called my series a cross between the scripts for My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I agree with her that this is a wonderful place to be. Bill A. Jones is a wonderful narrator, too. He and I met through the ACX audiobook production platform that allows authors to put their book up for audition. In just a few days of putting the book up for audition, I had more than 90 auditions, but Bill's was by far the best. This episode is going to be a fun dive into how narrators and authors can work together to produce an audiobook and how Bill and I work together in particular. We're also going to talk about the books themselves, play some clips from the audiobooks, find out about Bill's favorite characters, and explore the world of audiobooks from the perspective of a narrator and an author. My guest today is best known as an actor for his humorous role as news anchor Rod Remington on Fox TV's Glee. He has also appeared on Comedy Central's Workaholics, The King of Queens, CSI New York, Everybody Hates Chris, General Hospital, Days of Our Lives, and many other shows. He's done voiceover work for such clients as the Disney Channel, Warner Brothers, and the Fox Movie Channel, and was named one of L.A.'s best concert cabaret artists. We'll have information about Bill and the audiobooks in the show notes. Now, to start the show, we have a clip from the first audiobook where the criminal trial of Henry Edmonds is in progress. Henry is a man who thinks he works for Santa Claus, and he's on trial for stealing a flash drive that holds the key to Christmas. His fate, and the fate of Christmas itself, rests in the hands of Judge Augustus Langhorn Stark. Hope you enjoy this clip. Judge Stark looked at his watch, leaned back in his black leather chair, and sighed. Every witness who appeared in his courtroom, particularly the defendants, had the superb willpower to stop consuming alcohol after one drink. The sheer coincidence of this fact, which showed up in practically all Judge Stark's criminal cases, was not lost on him. Today, it was just one drink at the Tipsy Tavern. Peabody pressed on. And was the tavern crowded that night? It was a pretty good crowd. She looked straight at him, pleased with her direct response, except that it was too direct. Peabody simply looked at her, as if to say, What else, you idiot? And she took the hint. There were a few people at the bar, half a dozen on the dance floor, and a handful around the pool table, she explained. And what time were you there? She began to wonder if court was always this slow. 
she decided to tell it her way and get the thing over with. I got there at around 7.30, and I stayed until that woman over there, pointing with her right forefinger to Ms. Robertson, started shouting and carrying on like her pants were on fire, and then, Objection, the lawyer at the other table said, in matter-of-fact tone. He was the defense lawyer, Thad Raker, a well-respected young lawyer with a solo law practice. Raker had been practicing almost as long as Peabody, which made the significance of their presence in this case even more curious. The defendants in this courtroom were usually represented by the public defender. When Raker objected, Ms. Barker looked at him, contempt written on her face, but before she could tell him how rude it had been to interrupt her, she heard a deep, firm voice to her left say, Sustained. She turned to take on her new adversary, but was jolted back to reality when she found herself looking directly into the unfriendly eyes of Judge Augustus Langhorn Stark. The courtroom got quiet. "'Ms. Barker, is it?' Judge Stark asked. "'Yes,' she said, more like a question than an answer. "'Let me explain to you how this is going to work today. "'The man over there is the assistant district attorney. "'He is going to ask you questions. "'Your job is to answer the questions he asks. "'You may recall that he asked you a question "'about the time you were at the tavern. "'He did not ask you what you saw,' or when you saw it, or whose pants were on fire. I suspect he will ask you about that in a moment, but in the meantime, pay attention to his questions and answer those questions, and only those questions. The man over there, who made the objection, has a job to do, and his job is to object if he thinks you don't follow this rule. And it is my job if he does object, and that objection is appropriate, to make sure you behave. If I say sustained... You need to pay close attention, because that means you didn't follow the rules. Are we clear? he asked. Miss Barker looked at him in disbelief, probably thinking to herself, What kind of crazy rules of law do we have in this country? If I say too little, the D.A. treats me like a moron, and if I say too much, the judge sustains me. No wonder the criminals go free. But looking at Judge Stark, she just nodded in response, having the good sense to keep her thoughts to herself. She turned back to Peabody and said, I came at around 7.30 that night and left around 9. Ms. Barker, Peabody said, please take a look at the defendant seated at the table to my right. He is wearing a red flannel shirt and he is sitting next to his lawyer who is wearing a brown suit. Have you ever seen him before? Which one, the lawyer or the defendant, she asked. Judge Stark's chair creaked as it made a turning motion toward the witness which she heard just in time to correct herself. I never saw the man in the brown suit, she said, but I have seen the other man, the defendant, just once, on that night at the Tipsy Tavern. On November 20th? Yes. Before the next question was asked, the main door to the courtroom opened and a man entered. To those who saw him, he stood out because he was the shortest man in the room, not more than three feet tall. Though small in stature, he had good posture and held his head high. His black suit was well-tailored, and his shoes shone bright. His tie had a firm knot, and the design on the tie fit the holiday season, small green trees on a red background. After coming through the door, he stopped in the aisle, separating the two sides of the courtroom, and looked around. Edmonds sensed the little man before he saw him, and turned to face the door. The two found each other and locked eyes. 
Hey, Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Landis. Uh, it's it's an immense pleasure for me to uh, to be a part of your podcast. Yeah, well, it's so great to have you on here. And thanks for the great work on The Christmas Heist, a uh, book that you brought to life uh, as illustrated by that first clip. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I, you know, I, I enjoyed all three of the books um, just a lot. I, I'm a big lover of Christmas. And um, I, I told you during the process that uh, in addition to always loving Christmas, uh, it's funny, my wife and, and my family is a blended family. You know, um, you know I, I grew up with Christmas very much as a part of my tradition. But my wife is from a Jewish family. Ironically enough, her father was a Christmas ornament salesman. <laughs> also president of his temple at one time as well. Uh, and so there, there was an interesting uh, combination of the two of us. Our wedding anniversary is coming up uh, a little bit later this month, December 23rd. We'll be celebrating our, our 25th wedding anniversary. And when we got married, we had a little Christmas tree and uh, a menorah, a Hanukkah menorah. So, <laughs> so we're we're definitely combined. And and Karen has always been a lover of Christmas, uh, coming from her side of it as well. And so, so anyway, it, I, Christmas is a special warm time of year for me. And and this book uh, brings that warmth uh, that is so treasured, as far as I'm concerned. Well, thank you for those kind of words, Bill. And yeah, we, I'm in a blended family as well, in the sense that. Um, our daughter uh, married a, a Jewish woman and there, and she's now converted to Judaism. So we've got all mm -hmm. things represented here, just like you do. And uh, it's, uh, but you know, there's something about in, in all religions, there's this idea of, of belief, which sort of permeates my books as well. And uh, we're going to get into some of that in, in the show here. We're going to talk about the first book, second book, and third book. But before we do that, let's talk about how we met. Um, we met through the ACX audition process. And I mentioned in the opening that you, um, you know, it's kind of crazy. I didn't even know what I was getting into. I, I put these things up on a Friday for an audition, and by Tuesday I had 90 auditions. And I, I have to say that it has, I'm sure that has more to do with COVID-19 <laughs> and everybody being out of work than it has to do with, <laughs> with my particular book. But what's going on there? Uh, well, you know, COVID-19 certainly is playing a, a role in, in, you know, underemployed actors and narrators and what have you. But there, you know, prior to COVID-19 uh, hitting our country, uh, there was a very robust uh, uh, number of people working uh, in the audiobook arena. And that's something that's been going on for uh, 20, 25 years. Uh, I remember years ago, back in the um, late 80s, a friend of mine that I met through a theater that I was doing a little bit of uh, box office work for back when I first hit town here in Los Angeles uh, was saying, yeah, I'm, I'm narrating books. And this is in the late 80s. Uh, so this is something that's been going on for quite a while. Uh, ACX has become the 600-pound gorilla uh, as far as a clearinghouse for narrators and rights holders. That's the, the technical name uh, for what ACX uh, uh, assigns to authors such as yourself. Uh, it could be that a publishing house has the rights, if you will, to uh, a particular title, to a, a book. And so that would be the person or entity that you'd be dealing with. But ACX is a, is a wonderful um, uh, way of interacting with multiple narrators who, in the marketplace, are putting forth an audition for authors or rights holders uh, so that they can sort through and find the best answer uh, as far as going forward with uh, uh, 
the, the correct narrator to bring to life their audio book. Yeah, we're going to talk more about ACX uh, in the show here and how that platform works. But the audition process itself, one of the things that uh, kind of stood out for me when I was listening to all these auditions, and I did listen to every one of them, um, your work stood out uh, in a couple of ways. You had good audio quality, you had a good voice, and you also had a good understanding of the flow of dialogue, which must come, I think, from your experience as an actor. And yeah. I'm just wondering what your thoughts and tips are for any narrator out there who, who's trying to stand out in an audition, who wants to be selected when so many people are trying to, you know, fight for this work? Uh, you know, it's hard. Um, years and years ago when I was in college, uh, and I, I grew up in the South, I grew up outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I went to Middle Tennessee State University and there was a professor, I still remember him, Ralph Holman, who had a class called Oral Reader as Communicator. There is a real temptation for actors to try to fully act out uh, the the narration, and and that sometimes gets in the way of the understanding or the underlying message that the author or writer has uh, put forth on the page, and and so there's a fine line that you have to straddle. Um, it's like you want to communicate the information. And you want to suggest, um, in most cases, you want to suggest the attitude, the underlying attitude of the person um, uh, through the way that you interpret uh, the voice and, and all of those things. But you don't want to be so blatant about it that it takes the, the listener out of the moment. Uh, so it's not an easy thing to necessarily go to. It's, it's a more subtle thing. Um, and I, I, many actors are very good at this. Um, and then there are other people who are specifically, um, audiobook narrators, uh, a very good friend of my next door neighbors. That's all she does. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of the, uh, uh, the Swiss army knife of performers. I, <laughs> I do a little bit of everything. Yeah. yeah uh, we're we're, we're, we're going to get into that in just a minute. <laughs> yeah. But, but there are people who, who really specifically go into that genre and, uh, I think you have to have an ear uh, to be able to hear the natural rhythms of speech and of dialogue and to know how to sublimate certain parts uh, of the script while still including them so that the meaning is there. Uh, for instance, uh, something that's essential at times is the so-and-so said uh, because it helps to you know, clarify who was just speaking, especially in an audiobook, um, and and so there is a way of doing that. Um, uh, you finish the quote. Uh, yes, that's correct, Judge Stark said. And, and again, what I just did there is I underplayed the Judge Stark said, but it was there. And again, it's quickly done in such a way that it, it sort of gives you a little tag for the listener to know what's going on. You don't give it the same energy as the quote. You give it usually a, almost, a, to use a musical term, a sotto voce um, uh, way of approaching it. So there are a lot of techniques. I, I think uh, people with a good ear, with a good ear, can uh, probably uh, do this, but it's not necessarily the most intuitive thing even for experienced uh, performers. Some performers are amazing at it, though, I will say. 
Yeah, well, I, I, I'll share this with you. There, there was, you know, in this first scene that we just read, we didn't hear much from him, but uh, the prosecuting attorney is Jason Peabody. And one of the auditioners actually said to himself, well, he must be English. And so <laughs> gave, gave him an English accent. And, and, and it just was so off of what, oh. anything I'd been thinking about that it just, you know, it, it destroyed you know, their audition to try to, you know, guess yeah. what, what that was. And then uh, the other thing I'd say is that some of the readers, you know, had good voices, but it was almost as if it was monosyllabic, you know, it was like, uh, yeah, it was a good voice, but there wasn't any pitch, there wasn't any drop, you know, and so, I, and, and sometimes the dialogue was read almost the same way uh, as some of the prose portions, yeah. which, di- which didn't bring the dialogue to life. And so, uh, and then there was this whole issue of male-female, and I, I found this, I'll just share this with you and our audience too, is that, you know, I think you auditioned the, the second book, and then uh, I asked you to go back and read a little bit from the first and third. because yes. And then somebody else auditioned the third book, and the audition piece in the third book was a female character, Tarina Winter, which we're going to get to mm-hmm. today. And she did an excellent job with that little piece in the deposition. But then when I asked her to read, the first piece and the second, she was doing some of the male voices. She had a really hard time. And so one of the things that you did well, I thought, was, and we talked about this some as we were working together, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. don't try to do too much, you know, with the female voices. Just, you know, they are what they are. Let the let the prose and the dialogue sort of speak for itself there. And then with some of the male voices where you have an opportunity, you know, except for the Stretch elves, you, you, you did play with the elves a little bit, which was fun. You know, yeah. And so, yeah. So, yeah, I had fun with those. Yeah, yeah. But but does that make sense in terms of? It does. Know, yeah. It does. I mean, again, there's a fine line that you walk. Uh, you don't want to be too monosyllabic, uh, you know, too monotone, if you will. You do want to bring to life uh, the thing, and it's the idea of suggesting. And occasionally, you go beyond suggesting, but you try again to not be so. Uh, so outlandish, if you will, that you take the listener out of the story and, and they're thinking, wow, that's an interesting voice as opposed to hearing what the message uh, is. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's a hard, fine line. And sometimes I think I do it well. And sometimes eh, I, I could maybe improve on it. But but, you know, I'm always trying to get better. I think that's that's true of all of us in life. Uh, but it, it, it's a fine line. It's a fine line. Um, and suggesting something with the tone so that you're not really, you're not really trying to do a, a girl's voice, but, <laughs> right. but instead you're suggesting a little lighter touch with someone. And that suddenly in the mind of the listener, they can take that and turn it into something that's totally female. Um, uh, so it, it's, it's a fine line and it's not necessarily an easy line. Some people are more intuitive and, and better at it than others, um, and 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 I will state that there are probably other narrators who approach it from a different uh, standpoint than I do. So, I respectfully allow them to have their process. Yeah, we're going to talk process a little bit today too. But one of the things, nice things you did in the in the uh, audition part of the process, uh, and, and a couple others did this too, is they sent a personal note as well along with the audition to tell a little bit about themselves and to offer how they work and uh, that kind of thing, which helped because then I reached out to you by email and we communicated a little bit before we uh, went through the whole contract signing phase. But uh, I want to talk about you, Bill. I want to talk about your process. But before we do that, since we've been on the first book, let's just do a little bit about the first book here. We've heard the clip 
Uh, we, 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 we know we've met Judge Augustus Langhorn Stark. He's the central figure sort of in all three books. Uh, in this clip, he's a bit impatient. Uh, it's the last case before re he retires, uh, or so we think, at least in the first book. Uh, we're in courtroom 3150. It's a misdemeanor court. It's the courtroom Judge Stark likes least of all. And there's this witness on the stand who really don't want to be there, Shelly Barker. She's she's witnessed the inciting incident uh, <laughs> at, the, at the Tipsy Tavern where defendant Henry Edmonds, a man who thinks he works for Santa Claus, allegedly assaulted the prosecuting witness. And near the end of the scene, we sort of meet uh, Hank Snow. Uh, he's the nemesis of the defense attorney, Thad Raker, through all three books, Eyes as Black as Coal. Uh, so what were your thoughts when you're starting out reading this book and you get, to, <laughs> you're starting out in the tipsy tavern here? Oh, I, well, I love it. I, you know, I, first of all, you have done something in our process together. You, you were able to give me notes, specific notes and thoughts of, on characters in all three of the books over the course of us working together. Not every author does that. Uh, and, and it's not necessarily needed in every situation. You know, I, I, I did a business book a while back. I didn't need the notes. I, it, you know, I, I had a couple of broad notes about um, how they wanted me to handle certain um, uh, attribute, attribute, you know, way of attributing certain things and what have you. Uh, but uh, you don't get those notes all the time. But I got it from you. Also, in the audition process, uh, in the process of us going back and forth, uh, part of the ACX thing is you do a 15-minute uh, checkpoint, or as I call it, a, a tone-paste sample. And my initial sample of Judge Stark, you gave me feedback from that, and it helped to steer me in a much better place uh, for all three books. Um, because, again, you have the view of all three books, as any author would. Um, and, and you also sent me a clip of uh, Robert Duvall, uh, in the movie The Judge, and it helped to inspire this character. And and I got to tell you, I fell in love with the character, and I, I was so sad. I'm not. I don't want to do any spoilers. Right, right, right. No mind. spoilers. I don't want to. No spoilers. <laughs> but uh, 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 but you know, it, and then Shelley, God bless her. Uh, she <laughs> she's a ditz. She's yeah. a ditz, and she has no clue. And the judge is. You're right. He's impatient, and he's doing back and forth with her, and. And and I ditched her up a little bit. I I really yeah. did sort of ditch her up a bit, and, yeah. and and had fun with her, knowing that also we're not going to have her for a long time. Uh, we're going to have her for that little section of the book, and then we're going to move on. Uh, if if that were a major character, and if I were doing that through the entire book after a while, it would drive you crazy. Uh, so I would have to modify it if it were a major character. Um, uh, so there you go. Um, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the process back and forth. One of the things you did that I thought was really helpful was that you gave uh, us a gave me a spreadsheet when you would send in yeah. uh, different clips, and then you, you know we would give feedback. Uh, it could be either the uh, tone, or it could be a mispronunciation, or it could be you left out a sentence, or you know you you inserted a different name. But then sometimes, um, and I had help on this. What I did was I hired a an assistant who actually listened closely for the words. I listened I listened for the tone and the impression. I didn't even have the book in front of me when I listened. And so I'd just make a note or two. And most of the time it was 
our, our notes were compatible because I might go back and look to see if there was something. But every now and then I would hear, because you're reading, you know, for hours here, you know, and every now and then it's natural to maybe fall out of a character voice. And so yes. that would be where I'd say, hey, could you just go listen to this segment and see if you think you fell out of her voice and into another voice. And a couple of times, you know, you were able to fix it, you know, real quickly. But, uh, you know, I do think it's important that the narrator and the author work together to get a, you know, a good completed project. It's very important. I mean, um, uh, I edit my own audio. I've, I've edited my own audio going back 20 years, not necessarily 20 years with audio books, but uh, for different things. And I feel I'm very good at editing it. And in the process also, I do a proof, uh, but I miss things. Uh, there are some narrators, uh, some producers, if you will, uh, that's what ACX refers to us as, uh, some producers who actually farm out portions uh, of what they do. I don't want to farm out the editing because, again, I feel I'm very good at it. And I catch certain things in the editing where I will say, boy, I missed that. <laughs> yeah. And I'll go back and I'll re-record something uh, and then paste it in and, and, and it improves the performance. Uh, but sometimes uh, proofing is farmed out as well. Um, sometimes there are people in the Philippines uh, who do this uh, at a discount uh, and other places. Um, but again, I most of the time, I'm proofing my own stuff. But after I have proofed and sent to the rights holder, to you in this case, uh, there are usually two passes. That's the standard uh, where you go through and you say, oops, uh, Bill, you missed this. Or uh, it, there's a thing here. Or did you fall out of character right from, you know, 454 to blah, blah, blah. And, and that's very helpful. It's part of the process. It helps to keep me honest. It helps to keep me on track. And, uh, and, and it's just, it's part of the process. Um, uh, I hope I answered that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. It is, it is. And I think when, and the way this comes to the authors through the ASEX platform, there's also another platform It's called find Away voices and, and several others yeah. where yeah, find you, can actually, you can actually do the similar thing. That is you connect with a, with a narrator. Yeah. They have the, they have the forms online that you, you sign up and then, uh, you know, when it's time to present audio, I think in the first book you gave me all the audio together, but in the second, third books, which are a little bit longer, you would send me about uh, 10 or 12 chapters at a time. And yeah. that was good because then we would listen to it on the platform. We could provide the feedback while you're continuing to work on, you know, other sections. And mm -hmm. so um, it, it, it's a good, I think, a good way to do it. But, but let's let's do this, Bill, before we get too deep into uh, uh, narration and uh, audiobooks. Let's talk about you because, uh, as you said, you, you do a sort of a smorgasbord of things. You're, you're, <laughs> you know, you're, you're an actor, you're a narrator, you're a, you're a singer. Uh, so <laughs> which is it that you love the most? Well, you know, as you were reading some of my credits uh, at the top of the show, I thought to myself, boy, this guy can't keep a job. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I... I have been, I have done a lot of things. Uh, I worked in radio for many years. Uh, I had about a 38 year career in radio. Oh my gosh, <clears throat> I'm giving away the fact that I'm not a spring chicken. Uh, I was heard on uh, radio stations all over the country uh, via uh, Westwood One 
playing Frank Sinatra type music or whatever. I did that on the weekends while I'd be uh, pursuing acting work here in Los Angeles. Um, did that for years and was always able to find a way to, you know, be flexible enough, and what have you. But yeah, I, a lot of actors uh, end up doing more than just one thing. It's rare to find someone who just acts uh, on TV. If they do, then then they're equivalent to the person who just won the lottery. Um, you know, uh, someone like an Am Ellen Pomeo, who's uh, uh, been doing uh, Grey's Anatomy for, God, 15 or more seasons. Um, she does not have to do a commercial ever. Uh, she does not need to do an audio book unless she wants to. Uh, she's done extremely well for herself. And that's wonderful. And there are plenty of other examples besides that. Uh, but for the working actor, the, the guy who's not a marquee name, uh, this is part of the strategy. Um, something that they did not teach uh, years ago when I studied acting and, and, uh, and all of those other things back in university and then afterwards when I took classes was the business of show, show business. It is a business. And um, and in my case, I have interests and ability in different areas, and I've never wanted to just be a one-trick pony. Um, I've, I enjoy narration work. I enjoy being on camera and working with people like Jane Lynch. God, that's the best. Uh, well, I want to I want I want to stop you right there because that yeah. is a you, you you sort of lead with this on on your website and and your bio that you're best known as the actor. Uh, for the news anchor Rod Remington on Fox TV's Glee, and listeners, if you hadn't, if you don't remember this, you know, just go Google it. Google Rod Remington, or go to <laughs> Bill A. Jones' website. Bill, it's it's a really funny role, and I'm wondering, um, <laughs> can you do a little Rod Remington for us and talk about uh, what who this character is? Oh, sure. Um, uh, let me just click into Rod for a second here. Newsman Rod Remington here. Excuse me, I was just inspecting my tiger tattoo. I can't be caged in, Sue. Heck, even my wife knew that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Rod, Rod is basically the legend in his own mind of yeah. a local broadcaster. Uh, and uh, I have known guys like this, either in radio or TV or in both. And... Um, uh, it's so funny. I, I, I had a meeting with someone about two weeks prior to auditioning for Glee. And, and I said, you know, I'd be very happy to be the next Ted Baxter. Maybe you remember the old Mary Tyler Moore show. I do. And of course, uh, Ted was a wonderfully hilarious character, uh, who, you know, uh, later basically did the same character in Caddyshack and, and all of that. And I said, I'd be very happy to be the next Ted Baxter. You know, it, it's, it could be a decent and fun uh, thing to do. And lo and behold, two weeks later, I auditioned. In the audition, I played it pretty straight. Um, although I did um, an ad lib uh, in the audition that I later did when we were um, on set for the very first time. And, and I was fortunate in that. Um, Rod was brought into the series uh, about third or fourth episode. I'd have to look it up now. Um, and we're on set, and Jane Lynch is uh, on set with us, and and uh, and I'm kibitzing back and forth. Uh, and it, for those folks who haven't seen it, basically Jane is a guest um, commentator 
uh, on this local television station uh, in Lima, Ohio. And, um, and she is advocating that here in the United States, we take up the same practice as used in Singapore. Whenever uh, you catch people uh, doing certain things that are not okay in society. And her big tagline was, uh, yes, we cane. Uh, so in Singapore, there's a practice of, for instance, if you're caught two or three times uh, uh, spitting gum on the sidewalk or something like that, they may take you somewhere and cane you, literally strike you, uh, you know, and, and what have you. And so she said, yes, we cane. And the shot goes to me and my co-anchor, played by the great Erling Davis, and we are in shocked silence. And that's the way that it was um, set. It was to end in shocked silence. So I'm on the set. They go to us. We're in shocked silence. And I ad-lib this, this line, this next line. We'll be back with more hard-hitting news in just a moment. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it cracked up the entire sound stage. I swear to God. Everyone laughed their ass off. And... Um, <laughs> And it's like everyone set up a little bit higher and said, maybe this guy brings something to the picnic. As it turns out, they never used that line. They cut it uh. out entirely. But it, you know, that and then also I was doing some little ad lib stuff where I'm like making eyes at Jane from right across the studio and all of this stuff. And I'm very fortunate to say that uh, the character became significantly larger than what it was originally intended to be. And, um, um, I think uh, IMDb says I was on 16 episodes. It was actually 18. And then we shot a 19th, but I got cut out of the episode where Jane was doing the Vogue thing, uh, the Mo the Madonna uh, homage, uh, and um, because they were running long. Um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, over six seasons, it was a wonderful ride, uh, a lovely time. Every minute I spent on the set was a joy. And uh, just, yeah, lovely. Yeah, that's great. And uh, listeners, we're going to have information about uh, Bill in the show notes uh, with uh, a link to his website, so you can go uh, check check that out. And uh, now, Bill, you're also a singer, though. You got, I mean, you know, it's it's December, it's getting close to Christmas. You got any any favorite Christmas songs that you can hold oh, a few bars to? Well, I, you know, I I'm a big uh, lover of Christmas music. Um, I actually toured in a show called Big Band Christmas for a little while until the uh, promoter stopped paying me, uh, which is another story. <laughs> we have to yeah. talk to you. You're a former trial lawyer. We have to talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And by the way, I'm going to be, uh, I, I did a, a little, little, a couple of talks on, uh, you know, copyright law for podcasters. So don't, don't be singing something that you don't have the rights to sing now. That's right. right Bill? Well, there, <laughs> there's actually a very uh, lovely little song that I sang the demo to. Um, some people may not remember this, but once upon a time, there was an Ella Fitzgerald hit early in her career. A tisket, a tasket, a brown and yellow basket. Anyway, that was a big hit for her. The guy who co-wrote it with her was a guy named Van Alexander. The year was 1938. Van went on to have a, a long and distinguished career. I met him when he was in his 90s, and he and a gentleman named Lee Hale uh, had been writing things together since the time they were on the Dean Martin show um, as musical directors. And they had written a little holiday song, and I'll give you just a few bars of it to, since we're in the holiday season. That wonderful glow began long ago, we'll never, if ever, outgrow that. We simply must state, 
we simply can't wait. Oh my God, I kept on forgetting it. <laughs> For that one special date. And oh, it is so nice to know that. I'm losing the key here. It comes around the same time each year. That sublime super time of the year. When our words to each other are so sincere, so precious, so priceless, so dear. We remember our Christmases past and think that this will be good as the last. I'm changing some lyrics here. We will count all our blessings and make it clear. This Christmas, what we want to hear is more joy and more laughter. Good times ever after and so much more love and good cheer till it comes round the same time this year. Anyway, that's a cute little thing. So happy holidays to everyone. <laughs> that, that's Yeah, that's, that's great. Hey, listeners, when we come back, we're going to uh, dive into some more discussion about uh, how to make an audio book and how Bill and I work together on this project. Uh, we're also going to have a few clips from books two and books three. Um, so that'll be a lot of fun. If you're interested in uh, checking out these audiobooks, you can go to my website, landisway.com. Uh, there's information there about uh, all three audiobooks. Also, if you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you a, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you, that just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. We've got a little clip here in book two, which is the Legally Binding Christmas. Uh, we find Thad Raker, who's become famous in the first book for winning the trial of the century. There's no secret. It's got a happy ending, so I'm not spoiling anything. It's it's a happy ending in the first book, um, and uh, but he's but it's 11 years later. Um, he's in his law office. Uh, he's glancing across the street at the courthouse that. Uh, made him famous, but he's not in the mood. He's, he's sort of lost his, his belief. And, and the first book and all the books are about believing in something you can't see, feel, and touch. And he sort of lost that belief um, in himself and uh, what he can do and in, and in other people. And, in, and he no longer believes uh, in Santa Claus. And uh, in walks a fella by the name of Twirly Masters, which, by the way, you did a great job, Bill, with with this character. Uh, and so in walks Twirly Masters, and uh, he knows some things about Thad Raker, which Thad finds to be a little bit suspicious. But so what we're going to do here, we're going to play this little clip, and then we'll talk about it. We'll talk about book two, uh, and then we'll transition a little bit uh, to some more audiobook stuff, and then book three. So here's a clip from the second book. Uh, this is performed uh, by narrator Bill A. Jones of the Legally Binding Christmas. His view now revealed the first floor of the county courthouse across the street. His mind wandered to the cases he had argued there over the years. His most famous case was the criminal trial of Henry Edmonds that had started two days before Christmas almost 12 years earlier. 
The newspaper reporter covering the case had called it the trial of the century. To Raker, it was the trial that changed his life in more ways than one. It made him a true believer and gave him the courage to ask Elizabeth to marry him. They were married two weeks later. Raker came back from his reverie when a voice called from the office foyer. Anybody home? Raker put on his jacket and walked to meet the person behind the voice. He found an elderly man, about five feet ten inches tall, with fine gray hair pulled around his ears and tied in a tight ponytail. He wore black slacks, a blue shirt, and a red vest under a tweed jacket. His face was full, with bushy brows and a prominent nose. It was a cheerful mug, with laugh lines like lightning strikes on either side of his mouth. He smiled when he saw Raker. There was something about the man that Raker liked right away. "'You must be Mr. Masters,' Raker held out his hand. "'The name is T.W. Masters, but everyone calls me Twirly. Don't know why. They just do. Guess it's because my parents gave me the nickname. Yep, that must be why they do it. On the other hand, maybe they do it because I talk a lot and it sounds like I'm going in circles, or... Maybe they do it because when I was a child, I took a ride in a helicopter. What a ride. Do you like to ride in helicopters? No? Anyway, Twirly's my name. Yours is Thad Raker, right? As the man talked, Raker sensed the meeting was going to be a waste of time. But he did the courteous thing, inviting Masters into his office and offering him a seat. Raker took the chair behind his desk. Should we get the reindeer test out of the way? Masters asked. Raker was surprised. How did Twirly Masters know about the reindeer test? Raker developed the test because of the notoriety that followed the trial of the century. During the first six months after the trial, Raker received at least two calls a week from people who claimed to have some connection to Santa Claus. Most of them were criminal defendants calling from the jail. They wanted the lawyer, who got the guy off by proving he worked for Santa Claus. Any lawyer who could do that was the lawyer for them. That's why Raker came up with the test. Name the eight reindeer, he would say. The most interesting lies Raker heard in his career came from potential clients who had taken the reindeer test. He remembered one guy who, without hesitation, used the last names of the top eight players from his fantasy football team. Another guy named Seven Planets and Rudolph. Another tried vegetables. Among them were kale, butter bean, and turnip. One finished up with the names of presidents, on Washington, on Lincoln, on Kennedy, and Reagan. For the first four years, Raker agreed to represent anyone who passed the reindeer test, partly because they sounded sincere, and partly because Raker wanted to believe in their stories. But he finally had to admit that he was being too gullible. When he discovered that the clients who passed the test were either frauds or needed psychiatric help, he politely withdrew from their cases. Only once did the blinders stay on too long. It was the Patton case, and like the trial of the century, it made the news. How about it? Twirly Masters broke into Raker's thoughts again. Do you want me to take the reindeer test? It's not a problem. Matter of fact, I can do it in reverse. Excuse me? I know them so well I can do it backward. That won't be necessary. Don't mind a bit. On Blitzen, on Donner, on Cupid and Comet, now Vixen, now Prancer, now Dancer, now Dasher. That was, I'm not through yet. Don't forget Rudolph, and then there's Olive. 
There's no reindeer named Olive, Mr. Masters. Sure there is, he said. Just sing the song. He's Olive the other reindeer, the one who used to laugh and call Rudolph names. Raker was about to smile when he remembered how tiring it had been to deal with eccentric clients who came to him only because of his success in the Edmonds case. How did you find me, Mr. Masters? When you called, you said you knew someone involved in the case against Henry Edmonds? Please call me Twirly. All my friends do, and I want you to be my friend. After all, we have so much in common, and... Raker cut him off. I don't mean to be rude, but I have a busy schedule. The question is part of my due diligence in deciding whether to represent you. All right, Bill, could you take the reindeer test in reverse like Twirly Masters did? (laughs) He's great. Yeah, you know, there's certain... Um, tags uh, that help uh, a narrator. And you've given a wonderful tag with Twirly, and it's the, yes, indeed. Uh, it, you know, it just, it's like, here's the guy who, he's one of these guys who sort of talks and talks, it's, it's in whatever comes to his mind, it just, you know, <laughs> it, it just keeps around and talking, and, and you know, oh, what a wonderful lawyer, yes, indeed. Oh, it's so nice to see you, and you, Sarah, and oh, oh yes, indeed. You know, it just, you've given that little hook to him that is the hint as to the character, and, and he's just charming. Uh, he really is. Uh, it's wonderful work. Yeah. Yeah, th- thank you for that. Yeah, he, he was a fun character, right? And it's one of these writing and I'm sure acting sometimes may be like this too, but sometimes things come to you. You talked about ad living and a lot of times writing can be a form of ad living too. You're into, you're into something you're writing and then it just, something comes to you that you didn't expect. And Twirly just kind of fell into my lap. Uh, and I, I just, I enjoyed the banner he had because he never wanted to stop talking, but he always had a cheerful, <laughs> a cheerful countenance. But so no, nobody could dislike him for talking too much. He just, yeah. he just, he just talked. So, uh, but you know, we're into the second book. We got a little bit different things going on here. Of course, uh, Judge Stark is back in, in a different role. Uh, I'm just curious. Um, you know, you're, you're moving from the first book to the second book now. Thoughts on the second book, and uh, I will give you this little hint, and that is that <laughs> my mother-in-law said with the first book, see, you know. I watched a lot of Hallmark. You just didn't have much romance in the first book. You need to add a little romance you know, in the second <laughs> book. So that's why I put the uh, female lawyer on the other side and put uh, Thad on one side and had that be a little bit of tension during the story. You know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Hallmark um, because Hallmark has done a lot of, of holiday movies. Uh, I, I would love to see uh, your work uh, turned into a couple of Hallmark films. I, I think that they're they're that rich and could easily be done. I, I, may I backtrack just a little bit? Because we've been sure. talking all about me. You know, this is an actor, typical actor thing. You know, oh, it's, oh, I, what do you think about me? <laughs> this kind of a thing. Uh, but how did you come to write the first book? What was the inspiration behind that? And then I want to talk a little bit about uh, Twirly and all the others. Yeah, so thanks for that. Um, yeah, I was sort of in my mid-50s. Uh, um, um, it's Thanksgiving. Um between trials, there's not as much that goes on for a trial lawyer around Christmas. Uh, and uh, I'm sitting in my study and I'm thinking about writing. And I used to write stories and then get back to work and forget about them. So I was never really completing anything. And I was writing this little story. It was going to be about, it was going to be in a courtroom. It was going to be an assault case. I must have watched something on CSI or something. You know, I was going to have a trial. Involved. And then I heard in the other room my wife laughing and I go in there. She had put on you know, Miracle on 34th Street, and they come to that scene, you know, where they prove that, uh, you know, saying he's the one and only 
Santa Claus. And so, I, you know, my brain started working. I thought, I wonder if I could do a modern day kind of Christmas story set entirely in the courtroom. I'll start, you know, like one or two days before Christmas and just see what happens. And so I started, I really didn't change, you know, I had started, I only was in about five or 10 pages. I said, okay, I got a little, so I'm going to make this a little more humorous. I'm going to put a judge in here who doesn't like lawyers to much and he certainly doesn't like people that think they work for Santa Claus in their courtroom. So that's where I'm going to start. And I started writing and I would come home every night between Thanksgiving and Christmas that year. And my wife would say, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to find out what happens next (laughs) because that's exactly what was going on. I would come home, I'd put a witness on the stand and I'd ask him some questions. I'd go, oh, really? Okay. Well, that's good. Let's Let's see what happens next. And that sort of took me to uh, that Christmas. And I was up until about 1130 that night, finishing it up and wrapped it up, put it under the tree. And everybody thought I was giving them socks or something for Christmas. And so <laughs> and, and and after that, I just kind of it kind of leaked out to a few friends and, and lawyers and they read it and they were chuckling and laughing about it. And they said, you know, you should probably go get an editor, maybe get this thing published. And so that's what I did. And it came out the next Christmas. Oh, man, I. And a, and a, what a lovely gift for your family, because it's a gift that will always be with them, you know, a special memory of that time. Um, so that was the first book. When did you think, well, maybe I'll write a second book? What was the, the genesis of the idea? And, and at that time, did you think that you would make it a trilogy Would you, when you decided to write a second book? That's a great question. Um, I had so much fun writing the first book and, and getting it out there. And then, of course, you know, once you get it out and you're talking to people, uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas rolls around again. And it was re- really probably January when all the you'd sort of come down from the hive having a book and talking about it around Christmas. And I'm back into working and I'm looking for something and the kids are gone. They're out of school and I'm looking for stuff to do. And I thought, what if, you know, w- what if... Um, Thad Raker, 11 years later, you know, he's got a little girl to take care of. And what if he doesn't believe anymore? What if a new client walks in the door? And what if he owns a house on the outskirts of town that's over 100 years old? It's got a little mystery to it. And what if somehow that house has something to do with Santa Claus's distribution system and the county And what if the county wants to condemn that house? And I just went through this whole thing about what if, what if, what if. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of fun. And I actually talked to a condemnation lawyer. And I said, you know, this is what I'm thinking about doing. He said, you crazy? I said, yeah, I am. But And we talked through the whole condemnation process. And uh, so I just said, I just started writing it. I didn't know if it was going to be two books and stop, three books and stop. But uh, to complete the answer to the question, after I wrote the second book, I was thinking about, I was thinking a lot about Hank Snow, and I was thinking about how he had, he's sort of the evildoer in the first two books, and I kept wondering, you know, who is this guy? What, what's he really like, and uh, is there a possibility that he has a decent side to him, and what could that possibly be? And it's sort of a, and I said, what if we really took this third book, and, and then I said, you know what, I think all good things come in threes, you know? I thought, mm-hmm. You know, there's the Three Stooges, you know, Three Strikes You're Out, you know. You can always find it. The, th- the Holy Trinity is, is three. You know, so there's, In comedy, thought, there's the rule of three as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think 
let's do something that's a three and let's end it and let's tell Hank Snow's story uh, and let's really go wild here. Let's let's don't just have a trial in one place. Let's have a trial in book three. It's a class action lawsuit. We'll, we'll ramp it up. We'll have a and we'll have something going on at the North Pole with the Elf High Council, and we'll also have a federal criminal trial and we'll tile it. So it got to be fun, Bill. I was just like, in fact, when I wrapped it up with the trilogy, I was a little real, kind of sad about it because I yeah. was like, you know, now now I don't have these characters. I'm actually, I've been working on something else and <laughs> it there is a legal component to it. And every now and then, instead of writing the lawyer's name, I'll write Raker, you know, as I'm, as I'm typing. And I go, wait a minute, this is not that Raker. <laughs> you know, and so, so I've got to do that. But yeah, thanks for that. That's, uh, you know, and, and I don't know if it's for you, for actors and, and the kind of thing you do that sometimes uh, you ask what if and uh, and maybe it's how you're going to play somebody and, and an idea comes to you that you wouldn't really have expected to come. It's that magical, you know, writing is a magical thing. I'm sure acting has that component as well. We're talking about, talking about the characters, and, and you've created some great characters in all three books. Um, a couple of favorite characters for me. One is uh, is Judge uh, Judge Stark, Augustus Langhorn Stark. And, and because, again, of the process that we discussed earlier, that helped me find his voice, which I sort of dropped down into a little lower place down here. And he's not a city boy. He grew up on a farm. He's got a little bit of that ruralness to him, but he doesn't sound ignorant by any by any stretch of the imagination. He's get to it. You know, you gave me the hints, and and I grew to truly love uh, Judge Stark. That's a favorite. I have to ask you. You describe yourself these days as a recovering trial lawyer. Is this based on someone that you had to deal with? <laughs> uh, what, so you ask me now that I, I'm. No longer have to appear in front of these judges, right? It, <laughs> yes, it, it's it's it is a it is a smorgasbord of several lawyers that I know and uh, who are judges that I respect, and uh, you know one who's passed on, and uh, you know a couple others along the way who who I always felt like had a good common sense view of life, but who who didn't take any crap in the courtroom. They ran their courtroom, you know, but yet but yet on the side they would ask how you're doing. How's it going? You know, they were they were genuinely good people, but they they ran a tight courtroom and didn't put up with any shenanigans. And some of them were kind of, you know, they, they had that s- slow talk to them. And uh, but but, you know, the name Gus for Augustus, uh, my favorite book of all time is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry and, and Augustus McRae in that book. And I've got a dog named Gus. So th- this guy had to be named Augustus. And so that's how that came about. And so, yeah, it, it's probably a smorgasbord of different people. I think probably the the character that, uh, at least in the first book, that would have been closest to me because I was writing it when I didn't want to be practicing law full-time anymore was the, was the lawyer-turned-reporter. In essence, I was kind of that person who was watching this trial, and uh, mm-hmm. I inserted the that lawyer turned reporter into the story as someone who could actually come to court, watch and report on what was happening. But, uh, yeah, so thanks for that too. I tell you, we're going to be running out of time here. I want to, I want to get to the, a little bit more about audiobooks and a little bit more about the third book here. But, um, in terms of how narrators and authors work together in the ACX platform generally, um, just for those who are listening, if you're going to be putting out an audiobook as an author, um, you know, it doesn't, cost you anything to sign up for the platform 
And what you do is you go on, uh, put up your metadata, uh, you put up a, uh, a script for an audition, and then people will audition. And then if you connect like Bill and I did, uh, they've got the mechanism to sign the contracts. And then uh, Bill and I, we communicate. And um, although... <laughs> Hopefully the, all three audiobooks will be out by then, but, uh, you know, ACX has been a little slow. Yeah, they've been dragging their feet a little bit. Dragging their feet a little bit. But um, so it's a great, it's a, it's a good platform, as is Findaway Voices, um, to, to, to put these together. Um, I'm on both it, of those platforms, by the way, if you have any authors listening in. Okay, <laughs> he shamelessly good. said promoting himself. Yeah, no, that's great. And and I want people to listen to to, to this to hear how to connect with you as well, because I'd love to have others, you know, use you for their audiobooks and find a way voices just so everybody knows is not captive to audible or Amazon. ACX is captive to audible and Amazon. Yet when you do it through ACX, you can select non-exclusive like I did, yeah. and then you can go put your audio up. And that's one of the things, Bill, you have your own studio, you know how to record. Uh, you can create these MP3 files. And then when you're done uploading them to, uh, ACX, you then provided them to me so that I could then go upload them to Findaway Voices and they distribute it to the independent audiobook producers. And yep. for those who are familiar with BookBub, well, there's, you know, an affiliation to that called Chirp, which puts out audiobooks. And if you like to support independent bookstores, uh, think about uh, Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm. That's another place that Findaway Voices distributes to, um, which, uh, you know, if you buy a book from them, your favorite independent bookstore gets uh, part of the proceeds. So I think, Bill, have you had a good experience working with both those platforms? Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, there there's a couple of ways of going with anything. Uh, ACX does make it uh, very easy as far as the way that you deal with people and what have you. And um, and so I've, I've had a good experience Uh Pretty much largely uh, from my side of the uh, of the equation um, there's a couple of ways of working and if you're a rights holder or an author and you're thinking of going down uh, the road of uh, having a work uh, made into an audio book uh, usually there's there's two ways of compensating the narrator one is just a, uh, a flat per finished hour rate and that's the most common. That's what you and I did. Um, and the rate can vary. It can vary. I mean, um, if, if you're willing to get someone with little experience and, and uh, you know, that maybe is just sort of adequate, and, you know, you, you can pay a much lower per finished hour rate. Uh, or it goes up. It ratchets up. Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, but then uh, there are certain uh, narrators who are able to command uh, a different uh, compensation model. Um, and let's say that I had been then, I, I haven't looked actually to see whether or not there's an audiobook version of the new Bob Woodward uh, book, Rage, yet. But uh, had I had an opportunity for that, I would be interested in the different compensation model in which you received a portion of sales and, and certain top-notch um, narrators uh, have that arrangement where they get paid a stipend, but then they also get uh, a uh, a portion of sales. And so uh, back in the day when Jim Dale was narrating uh, the Harry Potter books, 
I'm sure Jim Dale uh, had a very preferential uh, agreement with the J.K. Rowling uh, uh, people and the publishers so that he would receive a portion of. Uh, same thing with uh, such you know actors and narrators like Lynn Carriou and others uh, who are you know very renowned at this. Um, so, so from my side of the standpoint, that's something to consider if you're a rights holder going into this. Do I want just a, uh, a standard per finished hour um, uh, agreement? And, and I think that's pretty self-explanatory. It's per finished hour. There's an estimate. When you put in the number of words that your uh, manuscript contains, that's generated, I think it's generated automatically by ACX uh, and uh, what have you as to the length. I tend to move more briskly than some narrators, and so it usually whittles down a little bit shorter than the estimated length. Some people like to take their time as they uh, narrate, and, and there are reasons why there are settings on playback uh, engines like Audible and others so that you can play at 1.25 or 1.5, right. you know. Uh, so, uh, so, Again, that's what a per finished hour uh, refers to. And yeah, and, and let me pick up on that because uh, what that means essentially is uh, the author is not paying the narrator for uh, the time the narrator studies the book uh, or the time the narrator does his editing, but the, the narrator then presents to you uh, the finished product. And if the book ended up being five or six hours, that would be the per finished hours uh, that you would apply that rate to. And so, and then royalty share, which is what you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, I think is uh, there are certainly pros for the narrator if you've got a really famous author. On the other side, though, you know, for the author, sometimes, sometimes be careful because you want to, you know, if you want to control the rights entirely and don't want to keep up with all that paperwork, you know, paying a, a reasonable per finished hour is a is a good way to go as well. Um, and I think either one is fine, except that if you, just to know this, if you do it through ACX, you might be restricted in terms of exclusive. I can't remember exactly how that works, but if you do a, uh, just a pay rate, this per finished hour, uh, like you and I did, Bill, then I can take that non-exclusive to ACX. I can then go put it on other platforms. Yeah. I can also do what we're doing now, which is playing these clips because if I were exclusive to Audible, I wouldn't feel comfortable necessarily playing five minutes without getting their permission and trying to get their permission. Think about that. You know, uh, so, I, I think yeah. you can play the uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a certain excerpts and you won't get in yeah. trouble with Audible. But uh, as far as more than, say, the five-minute retail right. audio portion, yeah. they might have some problems with that. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. So if I wanted to use it for more than that, yeah. So so that's that's, uh, that's good information to have, and, and I think it's uh, – helpful for people to know how that process works. And the one thing, you know, also I'd say find a narrator that you enjoy working with. And I really did, Bill, enjoy working with you. You've got a good sense of humor. You, Thank you. You're responsive. And, uh, you know, uh, you would ask for feedback. I would give it. And then, um, and, I, and I think there was a, you know, a time in there you were very good about when I heard a couple of these characters, I think maybe in the third it was, book. Uh, it was in the third book and Snowflake. Uh, yeah, I, fell, yeah, I fell out yeah. of the Snowflake uh, yeah. uh, timber. Uh, the the uh, Snowflake is one of the uh, elves. Uh, yeah. And the, and the 
in all three books. And that's uh, right. That's right. And Snowflake is up here. <laughs> yeah. And and if if she were a major character throughout all, after a while, it would just exhaust me and exhaust right. you. But yeah. because she's that little bit of seasoning that occurs, it's appropriate to sort of go to that place. And and I fell out of it, and and as a result, she started sounding like Tarina, which <laughs> right, right, exactly. There there was that one time, yeah. and then we're going to play a little clip here from the third book, Bill. And there, on that point, you were dealing. You tried out different uh, voices for the lawyer who cross examines Tarina in this scene that we're going to play. Yes, I did. And you know, because he was a a very large man. Um, wheezing at times and kind of things. I think I asked you to, you know, deepen his voice a little bit, slow him down at places, amplify it in others. At first he sounded more like an accountant, you know, moving you know, moving kind of through the through the numbers. And you really did a good job of taking that feedback. And that we're gonna play that clip now. And just to set this up, the third book. So we've we've got uh book one you know, you're in a courtroom just before Christmas and the flash drive that holds the key to Christmas, you know, is now in an evidence bag and Henry Edmonds is on trial. You come back with book two and you meet Torley Masters and the whole distribution system is is really in jeopardy because of the county's trying to take Torley's property. And then in book three, the book opens with Hank Snow being arrested for stealing an important document from the White House. And uh, sort of the primer for book three is attorney Thad Raker's a man who believes in Santa Claus, and for good reason. He's won two trials for defendants who say they work for Santa Claus and he saved Christmas both times. But when he's hired 11 years later to defend the toy company that made the most popular Christmas present in 50 years, the reindeer hoverboard, he becomes entangled in the greatest threat to Christmas yet, and he learns that the survival of Santa's North Pole village is at risk. But then standing in his way are a large class of angry plaintiffs, an unbelieving judge, the FBI, several North Pole conspirators, and Hank Snow, Raker's nemesis from his previous Christmas trials. And Raker needs all the help he can get, and he does have a good a good supporting cast uh, in his toughest case ever. But Snow, Hank Snow is the guardian of many secrets, and he has his own plans for the future of Christmas. So did I set that up okay, Bill? I think that's a great set. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so here's the clip, and the clip is Tarina Winter, president of Tip Top Toy Company. She's testifying in a deposition. Her company is being sued in the reindeer hoverboard class action lawsuit. The first few months of the reindeer hoverboard lawsuit taught Raker three things about Tarina Winter, the president of Tip Top Toy Company, his new client. She was headstrong, mysterious, and uncompromising. Her behavior today in her deposition was no exception. The court reporter eyed Tarina, ready to take down exactly what she said, but Tarina was silent in response to the last question. The reporter glanced at Raker, but he could only shrug. Did you understand my question? Robert Greenback was the lawyer for the plaintiffs. Victims, he liked to call them. I understood it, Tarina replied. Well, Greenback was impatient, is the answer yes or no? It's not that simple. And why not? Because answering your question does not answer why the hoverboard didn't work. Greenback was a big man. When he stood up to get water from the credenza, it was all effort with a bit of wheezing. He poured a glass, took a swallow, and turned to the court reporter. Read back the last question. 
The court reporter complied. Was Tip Top Toy Company the manufacturer of the computer chip that caused the reindeer hoverboard to malfunction? Tarina Winter still didn't speak. Greenback sat back down. I will break it down for you. Was Tip Top Toy Company the manufacturer of the computer chip? Yes. And did the computer chip control the flying abilities of the reindeer hoverboard? Yes. And did the reindeer hoverboard, the most sought-after Christmas present in the last 50 years, turn out to be a complete disaster? Objection, Raker said. Argumentative. Greenback puffed his chest. Mr. Raker, this is cross-examination. Of course it's argumentative. Your client is the one being difficult. Mr. Greenback, this is not closing argument. The objection is to the form of your question, in particular the words, complete disaster. Please rephrase your question. You don't think it was a complete disaster? Just a disaster? I'm not the one testifying, Raker said. I couldn't agree more, Greenback said. Raker didn't enjoy this part of the legal process. Defending a deposition was like having a cavity filled without Novocaine. All he could do was grunt, object, when the dentist-like lawyer struck his nerve. Tarina Winter appeared unmoved by the bickering among the lawyers. Her facial expression could best be described as confident but indifferent. She looked to be in her sixties, a tall, fit, well-shaped woman with porcelain skin complemented by silver-gray hair. She brushed a fallen strand of that hair from in front of ice-green eyes and stared at Greenback. I am fully prepared to answer your question, even though it is ill-conceived, presumptuous, and sarcastic. Robert Greenback became more aggressive. Insulting me is not a good idea. I'm sworn to tell the truth, Mr. Greenback. That's the way you want to play it? I'm not here to play with you, sir. I can see you are not a very playful person. Raker made a note on his legal pad that said, Remind client to be respectful, and then circled it. Greenback tossed a notepad onto the table. We'll come back to this topic later. Tell me about your company. It will come in handy when I get the judgment that puts you out of business. Tarina Winter ignored the jab. What do you want to know? she asked. For starters, who owns it? I have a 50-50 partner. His name? Next question, Tarina said, one that has something to do with this lawsuit. Greenback slammed his fist on the table, causing Raker's papers to scatter and the water in his glass to swirl. He shouted at Raker, Do we have to go to the judge about this behavior? Raker remained calm, picked up his glass, and took a sip of water. Perhaps we should. I can let the judge know you lost your temper and tried to break my table. On the other hand, it would be quicker if you just laid a foundation for your question. Fine, Greenback said. Ms. Winter... Was your partner involved in overseeing the manufacture of the computer chip? No. You're not going to tell me his name? No, and it's not a he. Honestly, what makes men think that two women can't own a successful business? Greenback didn't apologize. Let's focus on the business itself. Headquarters? Greenland. Manufacturing plants? U.S., U.K., Italy, and Argentina. Where was the computer chip made? Greenland. Who designed the chip? You're looking at her. Now we're getting somewhere, Greenback said. Tarina Winter brushed some lint from her sweater. It took you long enough. 
Okay, Bill, we got uh, Tarina. She has a little levity, a little humor here. She's a strong woman. And uh, yes. that was the, that was the other thing. I, I will tell the listeners here that my daughter sort of gave me a, a what for when she was, she was actually gave me some feedback on the second book. And I had all these characters, uh, but I was defaulting toward male characters. Yeah. And she said, she said, and even, even the appraiser. And she said, dad, you know, they don't all have to be male care. She said, women can be mean too, you know? <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I came up with, you know, different, and, she, and so the, the elf, you know, had started out as, you know, Bobby, uh, and then it sort of morphed to this, uh, young girl in the second book, you know, Holly, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, who became Liz's friend. Anyway, the whole thing, uh, with, with the names was fun for me, but for Trina Winter, she's, she is one of these women, you heard in this clip, honestly, you know, what makes men think that two women yes. can't own, own a successful business. Yes. And so I yes. thought, okay, so to, to my daughter, Jordan, I'm like, okay, did I redeem myself there? And my 17-year-old daughter, yeah, exactly the same thing. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I loved the third book. I, I loved all the books, but the third book sort of brings together all of these characters from the first two books, reunites them. Uh, gives them some new stuff. Uh, you, you, it's like you have torn, um, uh, you know, new stories out of the the you know news cycle and put it into this book, and incredibly uh, timely. Uh, things that deal with global warming, how that affects Santa's village, um, and and many other things as well. Uh, I just I love it, and it is a redemption. I mean, you're right. The the question that you posed earlier about uh, Hank Snow. And this is not the uh, the country singer from the 1950s, just in case you know, hey, it's right. a big eight-wheeler moving down the track. Not that Hank Snow. Uh, it's <laughs> Hank Snow, you know, is referred to in the first book by Snowflake as he is not a bad person, really. Uh, he is not. And um, and he is in the employ of, of Santa Claus in a very trusted uh, place. And when we come back 11 years later, he is in an even higher place. So... There is the question, why is this person doing what are seemingly bad things? And you have redeemed him, literally redeemed him in the third book. And it's a great journey uh, and, and incredibly fun, the way that you do that. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I just love it. Th- thank you for that. And I wish I could say that I had all that in mind when I first sat down to write that, uh, that first chapter of that first book. But, uh, but, but And some authors can do that. They can plot out like a two yeah. or three book series. I didn't have that in mind, but fortunately, uh, for me, it kind of came together in my head with with the third book, and it and it made sense to to pull that together. Um, Bill, it's it's been you know such a pleasure having you as the narrator. I'm looking forward to this book getting out there and getting some listens uh, during the holidays and beyond. And you've really you really have sort of um, you've done real justice to to the words that I've put on the page, and it. I had a smile on my face when I'm listening to this. And I don't know how it is with you, Bill, sometimes when you go back and you, you're thinking about work you've done previously. But, uh, you know, I, I had forgotten a couple of things, you know, mm-hmm. that were in my own books. Yeah. And as I'm listening, you read it, I'm going, uh, you know, that's that's not too bad. That's, that's, <laughs> I kind of like, you know, I kind of I like that. Yeah. And I found myself thinking, now, Lance, you can't be saying to yourself, what's going to happen next? You know what's going to happen next. But you sort of get into that mode and you're saying, yeah. I wonder, I wonder how this is going to turn out, you know, so, uh, but I did have fun in the third book revealing the secret of why children get coal 
I love Christmas. that. I you know, love you know? that. <laughs> love that. I won't, oh. I, we won't give that away. We'll let them go. That, that is let, fabulous. I just love let, it. Uh, let them go re, re, uh, listen to that one. But uh, So, Bill, what's what's next for you uh, in terms of, uh, I, I guess you're still looking for acting work? I, and, I'm always looking for acting work. Uh, that's my job. Um, you know, I, I, I auditioned. Uh, something that uh, has changed in my industry as far as the on-camera is concerned is uh, more and more you're being asked to self-tape put yourself on videotape and because of technology it's much easier and uh, so occasionally I have to self-tape especially during the pandemic uh, things have changed a lot as far as uh, on-camera casting uh, here in Los Angeles and and you know uh, it, it's a great thing because you can be outside of Los Angeles and self-tape and send it in and you can very well book something and um, I will be um, doing some performing online uh, for a couple of things, uh, a couple of benefits. One for the Innocence Project, which uses DNA to exonerate people who've been in prison. Uh, I'll be doing that next Wednesday, I think, uh, by Zoom, and it'll be streaming on YouTube. I believe that's correct. I have to put that on one of my Facebook pages. And, um, uh, and you know, eventually, you know, we'll get to a place where we can resume more normal uh, activities. At some point, uh, we will have... Uh, a vaccine at some point we will uh, come to a, a more normal place and and I I'm looking forward to the days when I can you know start singing with a big band and people will be dancing and and uh, and enjoying things uh, and that kind of a thing so so I have plenty to keep me busy and and as my wife reminds me I promised to clean out my office uh, and I'm about halfway through that so well just to let everybody know so we're, we're cheating a little bit we're recording in September for December, and we're pretending a little bit like it's December when we're doing it. But you will have done some of these things by then. And who knows, Bill, by December, maybe you will be able, maybe something magical will happen and we'll get a vaccine and you'll be out there performing, you know, around the holidays. But if not, hope, hopefully soon after, you know. And, you know, I have performed in North Carolina. I performed at the uh, Holly, I think it is, Cultural Center in, um, uh, oh gosh, I forget the name of the, the town now. I want to say Cary, North Carolina. Yeah, it's close uh, to Raleigh. Yeah, yeah I, I did that um, about a year and a half ago with a renowned uh, jazz pianist, uh, um, uh, Lenore Raphael, and a trio. Uh, and uh, so I may come back uh, someday to uh, North Carolina and perform and would love to invite people uh, to come and see me at that time and in a different performing uh, mode beyond the audiobook. Yeah, absolutely. And when you do, let us know, and I'll put it out on uh, all our social media so we, yeah. people can find out about that and 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 connect with you. So, uh, so what would Rod Remington say about Christmas at this time of year, Bill? <laughs> uh, oh gosh, <laughs> Rod. Uh, Rod would probably say something like, "Soon Santa's gonna slide down your chimney with a sack full of goodies, Mama." So till then, be good. Or if you can't be good, let me know who you are. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, that is great. I, I love it. Uh, so, I, well, Bill, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's been a pleasure working with you on the audiobooks. And uh, we'll be done. You know, we've put stuff out on social media uh, around Christmas about this. And uh, I'm sure we'll be staying in touch and as, as we hopefully have some success with the books. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing this time with us on Charlotte Reader's podcast. 
Thank you so much, Landis. Thank you. And everyone, be sure to go uh, to uh, one of the sites and check out the audio samples. Uh, Landis has done a marvelous, marvelous job on the, the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. It's a great warm read. Uh, and if you have an affinity for the holiday season as I do, you're going to be absolutely entranced by uh, Landis's work. Uh, thank you all and so long. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.